We are taking you behind the scenes of the National Institute for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. With unprecedented access to the scientists pushing boundaries and shaping our future, this show will take you to the cutting edge and beyond. And whether you're an expert yourself or just science curious, this is the show for you. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm your host today, B, and I'm here with the lovely Anika. Hi. Hi, B. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Thanks for having me again. Yes. <laughs> I love to have podcasts in person after so long recording. And I'm very happy to introduce our guest today because we worked extensively last year um, online. So I actually got to meet him in person. So please um, ha- say hi or welcome <laughs> to Dr. Robert Blackwell from CFAS. Hi, Rob. Hi. Thanks very much for inviting me. Oh, no, thank you so much for coming here and talking about your project. But before we talk about work and we talk shop, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, Rob Blackwell. I'm a data scientist at CFAS. Uh, CFAS is the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Aquaculture Science. So it's essentially the the, the government's um, freshwater and and marine science experts. Um, And, uh, yeah, so my background's in the computer software uh, industry. I worked there for many years and then... uh, about six years ago, I, uh, I I sold my business and then went and did a PhD, and now I'm a scientist embarking on my second career. So it's really exciting. Oh my gosh, you sold your business to do a PhD. That's like <laughs> <laughs> I commend you for that. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for being here. Um, now that we know a little bit more about you, do you want to tell us a little bit about TFAS and what your work is? At CFAS? Sure. So there's quite a wide variety of work that goes on at CFAS. Um, really uh, everything from um, a, a sort of aquatic monitoring through biodiversity and, of course, fisheries science that, that we're very well known for um, and a, a real wide range of projects. So, so too many things to, to talk about, but some of the things that I'm working on is plankton science. And, and that's, of course, why we met to, to do some interesting work on detecting copepod and non-copepod from from plankton imagery but I'm also doing stuff around uh, kind of machine learning to look at detecting litter in remotely piloted aircraft imagery so we want to be able to automate the the litter counts on the beaches which is which is really exciting and I also get involved in 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 fisheries work as well so salmon and trout um, and uh, sort of documenting the annual reports there so real wide range of things. Is this the first time you're working with marine biology and all of these different... So I, I was fortunate enough when I did my PhD, although the, the PhD had a kind of strong computing focus, um, it, it was actually about uh, krill. So I was very interested in using echo sounders down in the Southern Ocean. Um, so we have lots of, lots of krill um, down there. And in fact, if you were to catch all of the krill in, in the world and actually kind of weigh it against all the biomass of humans, we'd probably have more krill than there is human. So you could argue that krill are, are more successful species than humans. <laughs> um, but we really don't know how much krill there is. And, and, you know, we send research vessels down every year to do krill surveys. Um, so we want to try and automate as much of that. Um, and so I got really interested in echo sounders and trying to process that echo sounder data. Um, and, and so that, that was the thing that really got me interested in marine science. Uh, and that's how I kind of ended up working at CFAS, really. Great. Um, I have a question, actually. Why study plankton? 
Oh, I study plankton. <laughs> uh, well, plankton's pretty interesting. I'm, I, do you know what plankton is? I, I mean, it, it's essentially um, the, the drifting stuff in the ocean. Um, I, I have referred to it to my colleagues before as the kind of ocean snot, but they, they don't like me calling it that. But, but when, you, when you pull it out of the water, it tends to sort of go all gooey and, and horrible. But it, it, it's a, so we have zooplankton, the animals, and phytoplankton, uh, the plant, and it's stuff that's kind of drifting around in the ocean. Uh, and generally, it doesn't have any much ability to swim or to move itself, so it's at the kind of mercy of the currents. But it's really important because it's it's a major part of the food chain. So it's uh, the the copepod particularly of fish food. Um, so you know if there's no food, the, that uh, that affects the fish. So we need to know about uh, copepod for that. But increasingly, we're understanding it to be part of the carbon cycle as well. So it's you know the the, the um, plankton is um, a big part of sequestering carbon dioxide into the ocean. So we need to know about that from environmental change. But perhaps the main thing really now is that, that we know that um, plankton are very sensitive to environmental change. So we're seeing them as a kind of environmental indicator. Uh, and and we, need to, we need to obviously study that. I mean, we've got a long history of studying plankton, actually going back um, just at least 100 years at CFAS, people doing nets. But these days we want to study this patchiness. These, the, the plankton tend to arrive in, in sort of these random patches. So we want to know, are they random? What? Why are they sort of clumped together? What's the composition of those patches and so on? So, yeah, I think important from a kind of documenting environmental change as much as anything. I thought that's really interesting because we don't think about that very much, right? We When we think of the oceans, we think fish and big mammalians and stuff, but we forget that there's, you know, there's a little snot going around. I never, <laughs> I never actually pictured what it would look like um, out of the water, so now I have a very vivid... <laughs> Uh, uh, so it's, it's kind of a, a very diverse set of organisms, you know, for, uh, 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 various kinds of biology um, at, at various scales as well. So some so tiny that you can't see it unless you've got a micro microscope. Others are bigger lumps of things. And, and as you saw from the plankton imagery, you know, a really wide variety of species as well. Um, that's really interesting. Um, so you end up having a lot of data why do we collect so much data on on plankton? Why is that like um yeah that's, what yeah <laughs> that's a good question um well i I think it's back to this patchiness problem um so we've been we've been net sampling for you know literally a hundred years and we put put these ring nets in, but we know that nets are notoriously kind of biased sampling devices you you know you only get one net full do you know that that net full is actually um uh, representative of the whole of that um, pe that plankton patch that you're looking at probably not it's a tiny sample and there are millions and millions of these animals so what we really want to do is sort of take a slice through these these patches and to understand the whole composition so in order to do that we need very high resolution data and that's why we're starting to you know invest in these these other instruments so we've been doing things like using echo sounders for for many years you, Echo sounder puts a sort of ping into the water and then measures the, the reflection from whatever is in the water column, both, both in terms of its intensity and the, and the timing. So you can then draw an echogram. So we've, we've learned quite a lot from that. We see dial vertical migration. So these, you know, we know that some of the zooplankton come to the surface at night to, to, to feed um, and then they go back down um, below the photic zone um, uh, during, during the day because they don't want to be predated. 
So we see that, and you can see that effect kind of um, in, in echo sounder data. But if you actually want to study the individual animals, you've got to get into things like flow cytometers and the and plankton images as well. And and that's really why the data is going up at a huge rate because it's imagery now, and it's you know. So when, when we went from, you know, an echo sounder might do something like seventy gig of data a day but the new plankton image that we've got is doing two terabytes a day and so that's you know that starts to become interesting amounts of data it's definitely a data science problem at this point <laughs> it is i mean it's not in the same league as the sort of large hadron collider or something <laughs> like that i don't i don't pretend that it's a big data problem like that but it is a problem when you're bobbing around in the middle of the north sea you know and you're, you're trying to do well you're trying to store the data for a start and you're trying to kind of process it, and then often you want to transmit that data, you know, and in the middle of a Force Nine gale, having a spinning disk, well, that, you know, that's not that's not necessarily a good idea from a storage point of view. And obviously, we're we're now capturing too much stuff to store on portable hard drives. From a processing point of view, we can't you can't really process this stuff on a laptop. You know, a scientist taking his laptop on 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 board the ship now, and that's problematic. And you get, you know, we're all used to having very ubiquitous bandwidth, but out in the, out in the sea, you've got a bit of satellite communications, and it's it's really expensive. So you can't send back images and so on. So yeah, it's it's a it's a big problem, which is kind of why we came to you guys to help us fix it, really. Because uh, the truth is, on top of all of this, someone had to annotate this ginormous amount of data. And shout out to the PhD student doing it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. James did a great job. I mean, he he had. To, I think the data set that we were playing with was something like 20,000 labeled images. Um, and we had kind of, you know, is it, uh, we, had, we had sort of copepod and non-copepod, but we also had quite a lot of detail about taxonomy as well. And we're growing that set now. We, we need a bigger training set, but that, that was enough to prove the concept. Um, uh, an anecdote for our listeners is that um, I met the PhD student because of the work that um, Rob has alluded to. And he told us that he actually spent a month and a half just hand annotating um, millions of, of images. Oh my gosh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is a big problem for CFES, right? Because, you know, a lot of what we're doing is is monitoring. And we're, so we're, we're pulling out fish, um, plankton, all kinds of things. And what are we doing? We, you know, we want to know how big those fish are. We want to know the sex. Um, you know, we want to be able to sort them. We want to do taxonomic classification. All of those are really manually intensive tasks. They're all very skilled tasks because you need, you know, competent taxonomists to, to do those things. But it's hugely time consuming. And so, you know, that's the that's the real promise, I think, of computer vision and deep learning, isn't it? That the ability to automate that. And, and of course when we have instruments like the, the new plankton imager, that's you know, that, that can do something like 150 uh, images a second no human being is ever going to be able to keep, <laughs> keep up with that so yeah it's a real challenge sounds yeah very um complex and it sounds like there are quite a few challenges um, relating to the data storage transmission and analysis in marine environments we've kind of touched on the data study group and um your your participation in the data study group uh what would you say kind of made it a success well, it was definitely the definitely the people that made it a success. Um, I mean, it was a tremendous experience. So I, I sort of cheated really because I was you know, part of the organisation that was the challenge owner, but I also made sure I worked on the challenge as well. So, um, so that was that was sort of cheating. So I got to work alongside a lot of early career researchers, 
people who were very enthusiastic and it was a wide range of people you know we had computer scientists we had people who knew a lot about deep learning and computer vision but we also had some plankton plankton taxonomists and, and plankton ecologists on the team as well so you got this real hothouse of ideas people saying wouldn't it be interesting if we looked at this and 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 people getting together and sort of forming ad hoc teams and we had because it was a remote session we had people from all over the world as well so we had almost this 24/7 working we, for a, for a couple of weeks and, and and you know we had this quite a good plan and people were off doing their own things but we we ended up with a, an algorithm that really worked we you know we we ended up with an algorithm that was doing detecting copepod um, against the background of other things like detritus and non-copepod and it's doing that with something like um, I think it was 97% accuracy on 95% f1 score which is amazing really I think um, but we wouldn't have been able to do that without having that sort of mix of people really people who understood the the ecology and the biology but people who also understood um, how to kind of marshal these machine learning algorithms and and also all of the compute as well so there's a great team at the, the Turing Institute that sort of put the cloud computing stuff together so we had access to the latest kind of Linux virtual machines on Azure with GPUs, they helped us set up um, all of the NVIDIA bits and pieces and, uh, and, and and all the sort of compute stuff to be able to run those algorithms. And then, you know, the Turing paid for us to, to be able to run those things for, you know, hours and hours at a time. So we ended up running some of these algorithms for sort of 20 or more hours. And everybody was kind of super excited about what the result was going to be. And people were getting up in the middle of the night. They were interrupting their sleep because they wanted to know <laughs> what the outcome of the latest run was going to be. So... Uh, sorry, it was a long-winded answer, but it was a real hot house of ideas. Very, very, very intensive. Really tiring. I, th I think I sort of crashed and slept for the day afterwards. Um, but we got so much out of it. We got a real algorithm that works, which we've gone on to actually use. But we also got a whole load of really good ideas and a document that kind of lists every, uh, lots of stuff that will, that will keep us and our researchers busy for probably many months to come. Really, um, and some of those ideas are wacky. But that's what you want, isn't it? You want some new blood. You want some people to think in, in new directions. And, uh, yeah, that was a big part of it. Definitely. Thank you. Um, just for those who don't know, I should mention the Data Study Group is a quarterly um, event that takes place at the Alan Turing Institute. Um, we have a, from 40 to 80, um, you know, uh, people come into the, the Institute to work on um, set projects um, uh, for a, for a week long period, <laughs> so I should probably say that again. I should have wrote that down. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> um, we have um, so we have multiple people come into the Turing Institute for approximately a week to work on various projects. Um, if you'd like to know more, if you'd like to take part, please uh, check it out on the website. Um, they actually they had the DSG working remotely, as as Rob said, and I was part of the team. I was part of the organizing on this cheering part, um, and I can tell you that the results that we got were far beyond the expectations um, that we had set up before we started, uh, because uh, we knew that it would be a hit or miss, and we are very, very happy that it was a hit. <laughs> yeah, but that's the nature of these things, isn't it? You've got to try them out. You know, you don't know beforehand whether they're going to be successful or not, so you've got to invest some time and energy and some brain power, but you've got to bring experts together. You know, if, if we at CFAS had decided to have a hackathon or something to do that, we just wouldn't have had the broad range of expertise, particularly around kind of computer vision, 
So bringing the right people in to do that is is, is key to that. Yeah, highly recommended. In fact, we, we're running another data study group this December, uh, looking at a, another problem, which is um, uh, looking for C-pens in um, underfloor or, or in seafloor uh, video data. So we take lots of video material of the seafloor, and we're interested in the organisms and the uh, what, what's going on there. And, and again, it's a, it's another counting problem. But actually, this is an even more challenging problem because we've got to locate the things within the video frames and then classify them as well. So really looking forward to that. And that one's going to be an in-person event, which is going to be new for me. So you're going to be here in person? That's the plan, yeah. Yes, that's wonderful. You've got like the pre-tour now. So when you come back in December, you're going to be like, look, I know where the coffee machine is. That's right. So I've got got to tell your podcast listeners about the coffee machine if they don't already know. So I came in this morning and you and you asked me whether I'd like a coffee and I had to order it on an iPad. <laughs> Where else do you have coffee machines that are controlled by iPads? Only at the Turing. I do want to highlight something that you briefly mentioned, but I think it's such a good positive outcome, which is the fact that the algorithms that were developed at the DSG were actually deployed yeah. on, a, on, a, on a ship. That's right. That's yeah. right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so once we'd finished with the algorithm, we obviously had the, the weights and, and, and uh, all the information about that, and we could we could sort of reproduce that algorithm back at base with other data sets. So we did a lot more testing. But the instrument manufacturer themselves, they, they got really excited by this, and they ported the, the stuff to a different um, architecture. Um, so these Intel compute sticks, which they all were already using with the instrument, so they were able to actually get integrate the algorithm directly on the instrument, which means that we, we were able to try it out sort of live. And the kind of next phase of development for this is very much about thinking about real time. You know, we want to have a sort of edge AI capability where we're not just we don't just collect these data and then go and process them later. We want to be counting the uh, the animals as we're going along, um, and that will give us a kind of real time time series. Um, from 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 the instrument itself, and hopefully start to redirect us and think about, you know, being able to go and chase these um, these these, these plankton patches and do kind of adaptive sampling. Um, you know, we're too too much in science. We we kind of um, go and capture information, and then we bring it back to base, and then we kind of process it, and then we might publish it sort of three years later. But we want that to be much more instantaneous. We want much more real time and right time analysis and and so that's that's the next phase for that so yeah we really are using the algorithm uh, and doing real things with it obviously we're improving it as well we're taking a kind of data-centric approach to try and get more training data better training data and and refine that but yeah very exciting it's really amazing how this one well it was two weeks because it was online but two weeks hackathon managed to have like an such a, a big impact yeah um in just a few months yeah um which is something I'm really happy about. Um, uh, I want to just highlight one of the problems that we had in the study, which uh, it, in the in the hackathon is that actually a lot of the data that you collect is uh, to be dismissed, right? And you still had to dismiss it by hand. So that was our first goal with the with the with the, um, the DSG, which was to get a, 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 an algorithm that would differentiate between what is information and what is information. Uh, detritus and things that we don't care about but again highlighting the participants and how amazing they did they actually went beyond that and you can actually separate between two types of of interesting image not just like detritus and non-detritus but actually this is this type copepod and this is a non-copepod that's right 
and, that, and that's really crucial for us because you obviously you know we get lots of stuff in the sea there's bits of plastic all kinds of particles dead animals and and you know so you're seeing all things coming through and you don't want to count those and and particularly you know we want to differentiate copepod from non-copepod because copepod is the stuff that's the fish food so that's the that's the key index that that we want and so being able to kind of exclude everything else and to do that very rapidly as well is is crucial to it yeah thank you um in terms of ai and its applications in fisheries science yeah <laughs> a lot of s's <laughs> and i have a list as well fisheries science excuse me um, um do you have much to um much to um, add in terms of um uh, your thoughts with regards to this well just just that we see so many different applications here really all of those um, kind of applications that we talked about where people are you know sizing animals sorting animals and so on there's a big computer vision play in all of that um, if you know if, if we can provide automated systems to help scientists do all that counting then that's that's got to be a, a big time saving and it helps you know it frees up scientists like James you know he spent something like a month and a half or something you know well it wouldn't it be better if he was if he was writing papers during that time rather than counting animals He's a very smart guy. Um, we need to fo focus his attention on the kind of key issues, really. And, and so by providing these tools, that, that's the way to do it. But I think, I mean, across the whole CFAS business, there, there, there are all sorts of opportunities for, for AI and machine learning, you know, predominantly around the, the sort of computer vision stuff, but I think many other applications as well. And particularly with regard to to thinking about how we manage our assets going forward. We're incre increasingly interested in autonomous vehicles. So we have a wave glider, you know, an autonomous vehicle that we can put out in the, in the, in the North Sea. That sounds so cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, I, I mean, my colleagues would probably hate me for saying this, but it's like a super radio controlled boat, really. No one is listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but that sounds so cool. Sorry, it's just yeah. that this is such a different scope from what we're, at least I'm used to, hearing about so mm. when you talk about all of these things i'm like oh man that sounds amazing <laughs> yeah so we, so we have to invest in that kind of technology going forward it's very expensive to to have ships out it's very it's essential that we have ships out but we need to sort of augment the um the, the data that we collect as well so we've got lots of smart boys out doing point measurements at various points around the, uh, the uk uh, we've got acoustic monitoring systems out as well. So we have hydrophones out monitoring the, the background noise levels in the sea. So much data now that's, that's sort of contributing to this ocean observing system. Um, but, but we absolutely need more autonomous vehicles. And, and, and as, as they go out, you know, there, there's not a human being on there, there to make decisions. So we have to use the technology to do that. Um, we, we really want to go kind of uh, chasing the phenomena that we're interested in studying as well we don't want to be just drifting about and seeing seeing what we get generally we're studying things you know people are interested in studying algal blooms well you need earth observation data to tell you where that uh, that that algal bloom is going to be and then you need to direct your equipment to go and you know go and find that and sample that as quickly as possible and, and we're also seeing the the research vessel as a kind of autonomous sensor platform as well we you know have lots of scientists that go on to do very specific jobs very specific um uh, a, a kind of monitoring campaigns and so on but why don't we just run all of the instruments all of the time i mean there's some, some devil in the detail there obviously but capture as much data as we can and have um, autonomous systems that are processing that data summarizing it I mean, wouldn't it be great if um it, you know if you had the plankton imager running even if 
uh, even if there wasn't a plankton ecologist on the vessel and it and it was uh, and the, the AI was just looking for that and saying yeah most of this is plankton that we know about oh there's a really interesting animal let's keep that photograph let's count the the interesting stuff so I think there's a lot of uh, we can do with kind of summarization of data um, not exactly throwing away the boring stuff recording it but but actually just kind of um, pulling out the highlights and, and and alerting scientists maybe back at base to, to interesting phenomena that are being seen so yeah there's uh, the sky's the limit really and, it, and it's a major new direction uh, so we actually have a, um, a part of our CFAS strategy that's come about in the last year now is around data and innovation exactly to try and capitalize on some of these opportunities um, I do have a question because you're mentioning gathering more data but that actually means gathering more data. So that yeah. means that you're already collecting um, terabyte, two terabytes a day. Yeah. So if you gather more, how can can you um, how will you cope with the escalating of the even more data being gathered? Well, cloud computing, cloud storage yeah. is cheap these days, relatively speaking. So I think you know the first goal is to just get all of this stuff consolidated in the cloud. The problem is getting it from the ship to the cloud. Yeah, that was my uh, next question. Yes. <laughs> so the plan there, and we're not we're not quite there yet, but the plan there is to buy some uh, some data boxes. Um, so it's now possible with the, the the cloud providers to to get data boxes which might be twenty terabytes or hundred terabytes at a go. Plug them in, fill them with data, and then at the end of the cruise, actually ship that you know courier that to the cloud provider, and then they will make that available as cloud storage. So that's that's the sort of initial plan, I think. Um, there's there's some debate at the moment about whether we do need to keep all of these data. So at the moment, I'm pushing the agenda, which is let's keep everything for now because we want to use this as training data. But I think at some point further down the line, we will realise that some of this data is low value, and and actually, if we've got reliable um, uh, AI algorithms that that can count stuff. What we're more interested in often is the counts rather than the individual photographs of the animals. So I think there's a there's a there's a mixture here. Um, I think we will we'll use the AI to sort of prune the data, which will give us more manageable data. Um, but at the moment, we, what we're trying to do is to not be afraid of the big data problem. I mean, we don't have the same big data problem as say the the Met Office or the Large Hadron Collider. It's not in that scale. So, so let's go with it for a while. Let's see what we can capture and let's see what kinds of new science it enables us to do and, and then go from there. But for us, it's, a, it's kind of a step change at the moment. We're used to, um, you know, I've got some, some, some great colleagues, but we've, we've been sort of data limited for a while. Um, people have been throwing data away. Um, they've, they've, they've been having to prune this stuff themselves. And I think, you know, we're, it's, a, it's time to say, stop. Let's get on top of this whole data problem. Let's look at the end-to-end -end data journey and understand what we're trying to do with all of this and uh, so that's that's exciting for me coming in to to help with that with CFAS with that journey I think. Um, that's a really good idea I was gonna say uh, that that's um, you don't know what information there is on the data that is being dismissed anyway so if you have the capability of actually keeping a lot of it yeah um, might be useful. Yeah that's right. I mean, there are, there are problems here. You know, obviously, it costs money to store stuff yeah. in the cloud, but there's cold storage. You know, you can you can have offline storage, and so yeah, we need to experiment some more with that. Um, and yeah, I think at the moment, let's not throw anything away. Let's keep all options open and see what we can do. Uh, and 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 hence the you know the the relationship with the Turing Institute. We we want to bring more interesting problems 
to you to help solve, please? <laughs> um, that was actually going to be my next question, is how do you see the, the relationship with the Turing moving forward? Um, and what are the plans uh, for this relationship? So I, I think we want a more of a strategic uh, partnership going forward. Uh, there are discussions about that at the moment. Um, so you have a, a really interesting kind of environmental program that's going on, and, and we're very keen to be a part of that. Uh, so John Rowe, I think, is, is leading some of that initiative. Uh, I'm also meeting people like John Sidorn here, um, uh, and he's got you know some some great ideas about you know, how to, about cyber physical systems and, and thinking about how we pool all of this data because at the moment you know we've a lot of these government agencies and science institutes they do their own thing they have their own data but increasingly we need to be mixing instruments and 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 um, looking at a bigger scale so we want to be pooling all this data we we want to have compatibility of the data. So I think we'll, we'll, at the moment we're focusing on kind of solving the CFAS problems, but hopefully soon we'll be focusing on, on solving those bigger kind of marine science and fisheries problems across multiple organisations, multiple instruments and at a much bigger scale. And that's why I'm particularly excited about. Definitely. Um, another question for you. So in terms of uh, the future, we have, um, you've mentioned digital twins. Um, I think we had a, a chat actually about yeah. that off um, of the podcast. Uh, but in terms of the future, how do you see digital twins taking, um, sorry, being connected to CFAS in your work? So it's a, it's a really interesting space, I think. Uh, I mean, digital twin technology has been um, very powerful in, in kind of industry and the built environment. We all hear about digital twins of racing cars and digital twins of oil platforms, and you can kind of see how that works. It's it's a it's a very nice idea to have a digital twin of the ocean, but the ocean is a much more dynamic kind of environment. Um, it's changing minute to minute. Um, it's very hard to pin down. Um, we we have some very good models, hydrodynamic models, and so on about how the ocean works, and and, and we have lots of information about the the animals within. There, but it's it's going to be very difficult to have a kind of real time, up to date digital twin. So I think rather than use the word digital twin, we're starting to think about these kind of cyber physical systems. You know what what we what do we really want? What what we want to be able to do is to capture data uh, as part of a survey, uh, have that brought back to some terrestrial kind of information system, so that colleagues who are not on board the vessel can look at the data and can be involved in the science. We want to be running the instruments more autonomously as part of that. But crucially, we want to be uh, sort of informing the other way. We want adaptive sampling. We want to be looking at that data and having models say, actually, given, given what we've just seen on this mission, it would be a good idea if the ship now moved to a more targeted location because that's what we want to study. So I think, I think we're starting to look at the whole system sort of in terms of data collection right the way through to data storage, this, this sort of real-time or right-time actioning of the information that then actually affects the, um, the the survey that's ongoing at the present time. And that's that's the thing that's new for us, and that, I think, is the win. And also, if those systems, those uh, those kind of cyber-physical systems are, you know, kind of across organisations as well. I mean, we, we have one research vessel at CFAS, but, you know, the, the National Oceanography Centre has a couple, BAS has one. Why can't we pull those things? Why can't we make those things compatible? You know, if we're operating in similar areas, um, as we start to you know increase the fleet in terms of these autonomous vehicles, both you know uh, um, uh, uh, 
sea gliders that, that go out that go underwater um, uh, and and the surface vehicle stuff as well you want to sort of pull all of that together in one space and have all of that informing the sampling that you're doing um, so I, I think that's that's the prize really and whether you call it digital twin or whether you call it a cyber physical system that's really what we want to do it's all about directing the sampling i think and doing that in real time controversial question that i thought about uh while I, while i was hearing you talk because we've t been talking about how great data science is and how it can help and ai can help all of this but my question is this is a field that still has a lot of people doing things by hand do you see some apprehension from people that are used to doing things a certain way and might see that their jobs have i don't want to say uh, would have a certain level of redundancy and that could be seen as a threat so how do you see um data science and ai um um influencing these people uh, people's work so it's a really good question i i think and um uh, yeah if you've ever tried to publish a paper that talks about automated processing of echo sounder data it's really really hard i've, I've got a paper where we're, we're doing that automated processing just cannot get it published because everybody's worried about the black box everybody's worried about you know the fact that okay well i've trained that on data from the southern ocean but would it work in the mediterranean and so on and and those are all really valid questions we've got to have humans in the loop going forward uh, it's a given we, we can't just let these ai algorithms uh, run and hope that they won't run for years they've got to be continually trained but i think what this is about is changing what the the people are doing it's not about replacing them at all um you know, kind of visual observation is still a massive part of doing science but what we want the scientists to observe is the important things not the mundane things um and so the ai has kind of got, got to be complementary it's got to be an add-on it's got to be a sort of decision support system for scientists not a replacement for scientists um that is great and i think it applies to a lot of fields that have now uh an increase in automated systems because the idea is to enhance the science right yeah and enhance the work of the scientists not replace it uh, i just wanted to ask the question because i was thinking about it how we're talking about autonomous vehicles but it yeah. does imply that a lot less yeah. people would go on those <laughs> vehicles exactly but i mean and, and that leads to another kind of question about about ships about research vessels I mean, running research vessels is a very expensive um, operation so not, lots of people have been saying well can't we can't we replace research vessels with autonomous vehicles and the short answer to that is no um, you know you still you you can't do the same things with autonomous vehicles that you can do res with research vessels they're, they're different ways of sampling it's, it's more, more difficult often to direct a, um, an autonomous vehicle to the right place immediately. A ship can get there very quickly. So I, I don't see research vessels going away. I don't see you know, scientists working on research vessels going away. This is all about augmenting that science and thinking about it in a different way and, and sort of using autonomous vehicles for this sort of mass coverage and high resolution at, at points, uh, but continuing to do the, the observation and the, and the critical work um, that the research vessels do and and the other the other key thing that we must remember is that research vessels are about servicing smart boys they're about servicing these autonomous vehicles as well it's a kind of it's kind of like the mothership for all of this and so they're not going to go away anytime soon either mm, that's really good 
Um, thank you so much for answering that. I know it was a bit off script, <laughs> but you were just talking about it and I just had like this no, question. Uh, so thank you for answering that. Um, just aside, if you had said you didn't want, you don't know exactly, I would be like, damn, <laughs> ignore that last bit, please. But I'm glad you had an answer. Um, so now on, on a question about you, because we've talked about, um, the work and um, the future and how the DSG impacted um, the work um, at at CFAS, but how did it impact your work? What's your personal experience with being part of the organization, but also being a participant of the DSG and then continuing the work beyond the DSG and actually having to take everything hands-on yourself without, uh, well, hand-helding. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good question. So I, I was very much in at the deep end with the data study group. So I'd only been in post uh, something like six weeks when I did the, the study group. Uh, so it was all new for me. Um, so I was I was brought on in, the, in, a, in a team called Data Science and Statistics. So most of my colleagues are really smart statisticians and, and that's not really my skill set. I'm enjoying working with them. I'm learning lots of statistics but my background is very much in in kind of compute, so that was kind of where I wanted to add the value. Uh, I'd done some data science and machine learning, but it's such a fast-moving um, kind of area that the stuff I'd done felt quite out of date, really, even in the space of a, of a PhD. So for me, it was a big sort of shot in the arm, I think, and, and I think also for the, for the organisation, because we were able to do so much in such a short space of time. We tried out lots of different algorithms, and so I felt like I went back to the workplace with with lots of uh, lots of good ideas and lots of things to try out. And so the first thing I did was just kind of built the same compute environment that we'd been using for the, the data study group, just kind of replicated everything and just got the data study group code all working on our own infrastructure, proved that out, um, working working with some of my IT colleagues who, who were also really excited about the, the DSG as well. And so we kind of built that capability. And then having got that capability and, and gaining confidence in it, we were then to start to, to, to you know, lots of other people at CFAS said, well, if you can solve that problem, what about this problem? <laughs> um, so it's can you really fix kind the printer of, as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not quite like that. But computer vision related problems. Um, so that, that's led to much more interest, really. And we've been, we've been running these machine learning deep dives to try and kind of downstream the knowledge and share the knowledge around and there are other people in CFAS working on, um, on on machine learning algorithms as well. So it's about bringing people together to kind of share that information. But the thing it's enabled me to do is to have more of a focus on kind of data intensive applications and, and machine learning stuff. Whereas I've you know, been open to all kinds of uh, projects, including statistics. I'm, and I'm still doing some you know, um, fisheries assessment type work. And that's, that's interesting too. I think increasingly I'll be focusing on this, this data intensive stuff and computer vision and machine learning. And certainly, you know, if, if as I hope we get closer to the Alan Turing Institute and have more of a partnership approach on this, then I'm hopeful that, you know, my career tra trajectory will be along those lines. And I think, I think I find that tremendously exciting. It was really exciting to yeah. see this relationship between the Turing and um, CFAS growing as well, because I think your work is super important and super um, relevant for the environmental um, program that we have. Hmm. I think there's a coming together of things here, isn't there? Because we're really good at data collection. We've got the instruments, we've got the kit, 
Um, you know, we've got the research vessel. We can go and get these interesting data sets. We've also got the questions as well. And so, you know, you guys have got the, the, the knowledge and the, the experience and the, and the, the latest kind of uh, approaches for, for data science and, and machine learning. So you plug those things together. I think that's when you get really interesting results. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. And it's really positive as well that CFS are sharing that information as well with the colleagues. It's really good to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's one of the challenges that we have. We 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 need to broaden out this. We we need to build a bigger team that's that's working in these areas. Um, but we we need sort of kind of more. Um, I was going to say data literacy. You know, more awareness of what can be done. It's the sort of it's telling colleagues about the art of the possible, really. Um, I think because we have some really smart people, and if they see these projects that we're doing uh, uh, and that the Turing are doing, and and try and relate that back to their own work. Well, you know, as as those conversations are happening, well, even more and more applications are kind of going to come out of the woodwork. I think. <laughs> um, no, that definitely. That I think I think it's a very valid point that you said. You have the data and you have the questions, and if we can provide uh, tools to help you answer those questions, that's uh, really good. Yeah. Um, my next question is: What are your expectations for the next DSG? Because we went into <laughs> the first one with like moderate expectations but it went brilliantly so. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so the next dsg is all about um counting c pens in in this uh, seafloor video data and we think that's a hard problem um we've had some smart people have a go at that uh, and they've done a, a a pretty good job actually and and certainly shown it to be a very promising area but what, what we really want to do now is to try some different algorithms out and, and to have a a broader range of expertise on it and I think if we can get that sort of hothouse approach going again lots of ideas lots of brainstorming we'll be able to try lots of things out and see what works and what doesn't work um, and I think that's a that's another journey for us really we have lots of video material so this is this is one of the um, the, the early kind of forays into to dealing with video material I think. Uh, just a quick question as well for the lay people out there what is a c-pen? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so I should say at this point that I'm not a biologist, or an ecologist, but I've seen pictures of them and, and they look like feathers and they stick up from the sea floor and they're, so they're marine organisms, um, and uh, and they're also thought to be uh, interesting indicators of of environmental change as well. So they're they're sort of pretty things. If you, get, if you go and Google it, you get lovely pretty pictures of of these things that look like these these organisms that look like feathers sticking up from the seafloor. I'll definitely check that out. <laughs> There's going to be a Google spike on <laughs> on searches for CPEN after this episode right. comes out. Yeah. Thank you for asking the question. I was like, am I the only one that doesn't know what a CPEN is? Um, cool. And I was, I, I was also going to say that there's nothing like having um, a, a week of sleep deprived people trying to solve a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. That's right. I think it's the coming together of of that the, those people, isn't it? Really, and I'm looking forward this time to it being in person. I mean, it was great doing it remotely, and you know, COVID was different times. But I think here, and and certainly having seen your offices today and this kind of co-working spaces that we've got as well, I think it's going to be great. Well, no, I I'm looking forward. I won't participate this year. I won't be involved. Uh, but I really look forward to see what is going to come out of it. And sure. I'm so happy you're going to be here in person, and you know, just. Enjoy the coffee machine. Uh, <laughs> so what is, is, is there anything else that you want to touch on? Is there anything in the future that you want to um, tell us about? 
I, I, Blub is just going to make some observations really about um, how fortunate I feel to you know to, to be involved with you guys. I'm I, I'm I'm quite an old guy, as probably your podcast listeners won't have realised. So this is a sort of second career for me. I, I had a long career in the uh, computer industry before trying to become a scientist. And I actually remember an organisation called the Turing Institute um, back in the early 90s. That not, not a lot of people will remember that, but they, there was an organisation called the Turing Institute in Glasgow that was studying AI. And um, I was very interested in that at the time. We were doing things like uh, symbolic computation. We were doing um, rules-based systems. And I, I was doing a lot of kind of so-called expert systems in the telecom space. So it's it's kind of like full circle for me to come back to see the new Alan Turing Institute here in London. And of course, you know, the whole field of AI has changed so much now. The things, you know, the things that are doing now, were we just couldn't have even contemplated back then. So to now be working in AI again and, and now it being about, you know, convolutional neural networks, computer vision, deep learning and so on. It's just a fantastic experience for me. So I sort of, um, I had a big grin on my face when I walked into the the Alan Turing Institute this morning. So thank you. I can confirm that. I was right next to it and there might be a sneaky selfie that you took. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, I always like to ask this question. um, How can people get involved? You know, are people able to go on your website? Can people view some of these images or is it open to the public? How can they? Sure. So so the, the, the... the, the plankton data study group everything that came out of that is open um, there's a report that's up on the alan turing institute website very comprehensive report um, and all of the code um, and kind of information associated with that is in a github repository as well uh, i'm not sure about the data whether that's been published i think it is isn't it is, is that on zenodo yeah but and if there's anybody a wants that data, well. yeah so that's all around we have SciVision as well uh, so the model that got produced got integrated into SciVision. Um, so lots of ways that people can kind of kind of play with those data as well. Um, yeah, and uh, or or just reach out to us. Fantastic. And how how can people reach out to you in particular? Do you have like social media? Uh... I, I do, but I'm just trying to remember what my. <laughs> <laughs> I am at Rob Blackwell, I think. Okay. On Watchful. most of the uh, on most of the social media platforms. Yeah, I'll, people can just Google your name and maybe see fast and <laughs> in case there is. <laughs> yeah, I, or, or if you're old school, you'd go to a website, robblackwell.com. Oh, wonderful. That's perfect. Yeah, even better. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rob, for, for being a guest here, for coming to the Turing, coming all the way here and having a chat with us. It was lovely. Um, it was lovely to have this conversation. Um, Definitely. Thank you so much. Yes. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's just been a great experience and I'm, I'm really hoping we can do some more good stuff together in the future. Oh, I'm sure we will. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The Turing Podcast is produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. The show is hosted by me, B. Costa Gomez, Ed Calstry, Joe Dungate, Christina Last, and Anika York. Music for this podcast is produced by Jam and Sun. You can listen and follow via the link in the description or by searching Jam and Sun on Instagram. Music